0: Hello, and welcome to The Dot, Canada's internet podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Callahan. The Dot is a podcast that explores the good, the bad, and the amazing of Canada's internet. We bring interesting people, interesting stories, and shine a light on the best that Canada's internet has to offer. The Dot is brought to you by CIRA, the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. We're working every day to build a trusted internet for Canadians. Today on the podcast, I interviewed Cory Doctorow, Canadian sci-fi author and digital activist about a range of digital issues, from privacy to COVID-19 contact tracing apps. It's a really interesting discussion. I also chatted with Catherine Hill, Executive Director of Mediasmarts, about a program to help stop the spread of misinformation online. But first, here's what's happening on Canada's internet. SURA recently released the 2020 edition of Canada's Internet Factbook, the yearly look at how Canadians use the internet had some interesting takeaways. One of the most significant was the level of toxicity and harassment being seen on social media. The survey found that three in 10 Canadians say they have been reluctant to use social media because of harassment. Facebook is named by 41 percent of respondents as the most toxic platform they use, and less than two-thirds felt safe from harassment on Facebook. Another interesting find: one-third of Canadians think their mobile phones are listening to them without their consent. I know every time I mention a product at the dinner table, and it appears in my Instagram feed a day later, I'm a little bit suspicious as well. You can read the entire report at sierraca slash factbook. We talk a lot about the community investment program on the podcast, so you may be interested to know that we just announced the recipients of the next round of grants. 20 projects were selected for grants as part of Sierra's $1.25 million program. A few interesting ones. Reboot Canada will work with local Indigenous and rural youth in five small communities in Northern Ontario to train them and set them up to operate free Wi-Fi hotspots. The Yukon Learn Society is a seniors outreach program that works with seniors in the Yukon to ensure they get training on how to use new technology and basic computer skills. And the Parkdale Centre for Innovation is moving their entrepreneur training program online so that people outside of Toronto's Parkdale community can access the curriculum and participate in a virtual business incubator. You can learn more about these great projects and many more at sierra.ca slash grants. Okay, so on to our first interview. I speak with Cory Doctorow, Canadian sci-fi author and digital activist, about a whole bunch of issues from privacy to COVID-19 tracing apps. It's a really interesting conversation, and if you know anything about Corey's work, you'll know that he's one of the most interesting minds out there when it comes to digital issues. Okay, so today we're talking with Corey Doctorow. Uh, Corey, nice to uh, nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you too. Uh, lovely to chat. Wish it were under better circumstances. Yeah, so about that, um, it's a really interesting
0: time for the internet, and, uh, you know, I've Uh, you know, I follow you quite extensively on social media and in a lot of your writings, and I know that you, uh, you're very outspoken about uh, internet issues and digital issues, but I I don't imagine, well, actually, you probably have imagined a scenario like this in one of your, one of your works at some point, but, but how, just how extraordinary is this time right now during COVID-19 for the internet and digital issues?
1: I think that, what coronavirus has done, not just for the internet and digital issues, but for so many of our issues, is it's taken phenomena that were slow moving enough that it, we were kind of like the the apocryphal frogs boiling in the pot, and it's turned the heat up on them. Right. So it's made a bunch of things that, you know, like, I mean, take, take the deaths in long term care facilities in, in Canada. Those long-term care facilities were overcrowded, had short housing shortages and were underfunded and were more responsive to their shareholders than to the people who they were supposed to be taking care of for a long time. But when the deaths were, you know, a couple a year, then there wasn't really this kind of... this. The, you didn't get people, cops coming into a, a long-term care facility in Quebec and saying it was like liberating a concentration camp. Right. It took this acceleration to reveal what's going on. And so, you know, I'm a Canadian, but I live in the US and the US, you know, for decades has had this kind of laissez faire attitude towards broadband where they've said that, you know, the private sector gets a monopoly from the government. But that monopoly doesn't come with any strings attached that that they get to decide where the broadband goes and how fast it's going to be and what's what it's going to cost. It's like it's like saying, you know, like the interstate highway system or the 401 is just going to be left up to like some random company that has a sweetheart deal with the government and they'll decide what route it takes right. and and whether or not it needs to be maintained. You know, and, and obviously that was a problem for lots of people prior to the crisis, you know, there's, there's tens of millions of Americans without broadband and and tens of millions more with very poor broadband. But it it wasn't until broadband became not just an important way to be in the world, but the only important way to be in the world, that we started to sit up and take notice in this very sharp-edged way. I mean, it wasn't like lacking broadband before didn't put you at a terrible and ghastly disadvantage. It's just that that disadvantage was spaced out over time. You know, one week you couldn't pay a bill because they only had online bill pay. And the next week you couldn't apply for a job because all the jobs were online. And the the week after, your kids couldn't look up some resources for a test. And it just happened over time. It was all spread out. Just like, you know, if you if you learn how to distribute your weight, you can learn how to walk on glass because the the pressure is spread out. When the pressure is intensified, you know, someone jumps on your shoulders while you're doing it you get cut to ribbons, right? It, it becomes uh, impossible not to notice that you're walking on glass.
0: Right. And I think, you know, um, as I know you saw, because uh, that we released a report recently saying that the uh, the rural urban internet gap here in Canada is actually getting getting worse in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I think our, our data showed that it was uh, 12 times uh, slower uh, rural internet speeds versus urban. And I think one of the things that I think we've kind of, pinpointed there is, uh, you know, when you're in an urban environment, luckily you have options, whereas in a lot of these rural environments, you actually don't even have any options, even if you could afford them.
1: Yeah, sure. And certainly that's happening here, too. And, you know, even in urban environments, the options, although they're better than rural environments, are still often not great. I mean, Toronto, there are lots of people in central Toronto can't get fibre. Right. Yeah. So you have, you know, the most densely populated r- region. It's not like it's not like people saying, well, how would you possibly profitably string fiber across Nunavut or something? Right. This is like, how could you possibly string fiber profitably from 151 Front Street, where 98 percent of Canada's long distance traffic traverses to next door? And all yeah. of this, Somehow that becomes like an insurmountable problem. And And you know what? Like, if you can't figure out how to do that with the regulatory monopoly you've been given you should have it taken away and if no one in the private sector is willing to do it then we should do it right like if the private sector wouldn't build the 401 then we should build the 401 right yeah
0: and i think the 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 comment you make about how everything's just sort of become far more urgent rather than being sort of a drip 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 over time is really really hits home for me i mean i think i've i've likened it to the internet is kind of like a lifeboat for our society right now And um, it's pretty desperate if you're not in that boat right now. And I think that's what a lot of rural Canadians are facing.
1: Well, and you know, five years ago, it was obvious that everything we did involved the internet. You know, now everything we do requires it. But you know, again, like that was, the writing was on the wall and, and the disadvantage was real and sharp edged, especially for the most disadvantaged people. And you know, it's like, it's not a coincidence that if you don't have good broadband, you probably also don't have clean water. And you probably don't have adequate educational facilities, and you probably are also struggling with other problems like, uh, you know, inadequate an, an um, health and inadequate addiction counseling and all the rest of it. That that what you see is not that broadband is preferentially neglected for people who are disfavored, rural or low income. It's that people who are disfavored, uh, low income or rural, lack all of the essentials of life. Mm-hmm. And what's changed over the last decade is that the internet has become one of those essentials.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that is where we're starting to see a real gap is in the fact that, like you said, there's a real sort of focus now on where those gaps are, whereas before it was a lot easier to ignore them. Um, I know my wife is a teacher, and uh, you know she's struggling to teach her high school students from home and one of the problems she comes across almost on a daily basis is, and again, this is urban Ottawa, is uh, kids who don't even have access to devices or, or Internet to, to do that. So she feels sometimes like she's privileging certain kids over others through no fault of her own because it's the only method that she has right now.
1: Yeah, you know, I live in a, um, a nice affluent suburb of Los Angeles, Burbank, which is like its own little city just outside. It's sort of like North York used to be before amalgamation in Toronto. You know, despite that, there are lots of, of working families in this school district where they have three kids and one laptop, mm-hmm. and that laptop is being used not just for the um, parents' employment but for all three of those kids education and you know one of the things that we're learning about pandemics or that we knew before but which the pandemic is making undeniable is that like if if we're all in the same pool it doesn't make any sense to have a pissing end and a no pissing end you know deciding not to treat some of the population for coronavirus turns out to be kind of a catastrophe you know Singapore had the virus completely under control Everywhere except the uh, dorms where the migrant workers that the entire economy depends on lived, which are historically overcrowded and couldn't possibly be subject to social distancing. And then they got the virus again. And my daughter goes to a great public middle school in our area. But the amount of schoolwork that they've had through this uh, homeschooling period, which which ends this week, has been really light. I mean, they, have, they just haven't been getting... Yeah you know, uh, a kind of replacement load. And it's not just because homeschooling is a little slower. It's because the school knows that there are families where three kids are sharing one laptop with two parents. Right. And that is the limiting factor. So the limitations placed on our neighbors by their economic circumstances, by the digital divide, Mm. are limitations that the rest of us have to contend with.
0: Right. Well, and the system needs to unfortunately, a lot of times the system has to accommodate down to that, I don't want to use the word lowest common denominator because I don't mean to apply that, but like down to that lowest level of access, which then can potentially bring the whole system down.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, just think about it, like from the point of view of, um, you know, a family trying to stay connected during lockdown, spread out all over the country or the city or the world. Mm. And one member of that family only gets access to the internet for an hour on Wednesdays. Right. I mean, the whole family, either the whole family leaves that family member behind or the whole family has the same level of access effectively as the person with the worst access. Right. And
0: well, I think that's a really great way to think about it when you think about universal services like education and potentially healthcare, care um, is how the Internet impacts that universality aspect of it.
1: Well, again, you know, if everything we do involves the Internet and everything we do will require it, and, and at least under pandemic, it certainly does require it, then, yeah, if, if people don't have access, then then they've effectively been frozen out. I mean, th- we have universal education and universal healthcare and other universalities, you know, we even though we have homelessness, we don't have the idea... There's a kind of natural level of homelessness. You know, economists have this dreadful idea of the natural level of unemployment. But even the most you know venal like sociopathic economist doesn't talk about the natural <laughs> level of homelessness. Right. but but we have a we have a natural level of disconnectedness mm-hmm. that we've just kind of settled on. And you know, I talked before about how uh, the people who lack internet access, in some ways, it's not remarkable because they're also the people who lack clean water and clean health and the rest of it. It is, in fact, different. And it's different because the internet is the way that you advocate for those things. It's the way that you find out whether or not what you have is adequate. So the way you measure your, qual- your quality of water or what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, although the internet isn't a replacement for clean water, In this day and age it's it's hard to get clean water without the internet right how do you tell people about the lack of potable water on your remote indigenous reservation right without the internet and so it's this like necessary but insufficient precondition for all of those things that we think of as critical like water and health and education elder care Addiction counseling and so on, you know, leaving aside like whether or not we're going to stabilize telemedicine after this and have it become like another arrow in the quiver of the, of the health apparatus, even if there's no telemedicine, if you don't have the internet, you can't double check what your doctor's telling you to find out whether or not you're getting adequate care. Right. And so the, the 10 years ago, 15 years ago, actually, the, the Finnish government declared broadband a human right and people laughed. Right. Malcolm Gladwell wrote this column where he said, you know, real social change doesn't happen online. That's just clicktivism. Real social change happens when you uh, march in the street and Bull Connor sets the dogs on you in Selma, Alabama. And that is real social change. Don't get me wrong. You know, I was arrested before I was 12 with my dad at a, at a demonstration, right? Like, I'm there, you know, but, but uh, real social change today is unimaginable without the Internet. Right. The the idea, like, how would you get people onto the bridge in Selma and how would you publicize the videos of the dogs that Bull Connor loosed upon them without the Internet? You know, of course the Internet is a human right. Of course it is. How could it not be? How could it not be if all of the other rights depend on it?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the issue of access is one
0: that we've been focusing on quite a bit here at CIRA and and I know it's an issue here in Canada, and I know it's an issue in the US as well, where where you're living now. Another thing that I, I want to touch on a little bit is um the issue of privacy, which I know is is something that's uh, you're passionate about as well. And I mean, obviously as we, you know, move our economy and our society, education system, you mentioned healthcare potentially in a in an internet environment. You know, a lot of these privacy issues that we've been struggling with over the past few years are now really coming to a head. And, and unfortunately, as is the case with a lot of crises, you know, in, in some ways we may not be properly looking at some of the risks involved here. Think about things like content tracing or sorry, contact tracing apps um, for COVID and and things like that. I'm wondering what kind of uh, sort of pitfalls you're seeing with some of the way that uh, privacy is unfolding in the COVID-19 era online.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there is like a big factual question about uh, coronavirus and um, automated contact tracing. So no no one has actually built an automated contact tracing app yet. What they've all done is varying degrees of exposure notification apps. Uh, an exposure notification is maybe a useful adjunct in public health context. We've actually never used automated exposure notification in a public health context that I know of. So we don't know if, if it actually does help. And certainly it doesn't help in the absence of testing, right? right. Both, both exposure notification and um, contact tracing are really heavily reliant on testing. Right. You, you know, knowing you were exposed without knowing whether you're antibody positive is a very limited use, right? It's not useless, but it's a very limited use. And contact tracing, it's like a shoe leather thing. You know, when you when you look at like the most successful coronavirus app penetration, you know, like in um, Iceland, which has 40% penetration and probably, you know, one of the higher levels of trust in, in the government of, of any country. Uh, not perfect. They, they had a big crisis around the Panama Papers and their government fell and so on, but pretty high relative to other states. They do have the virus under control and they did it with not with, with the app, right? They did it with shoe leather contact tracing. They went around and talked to people. They called them. They asked them who they were near uh, and then they called those people. And the people who ran that effort, they said, like, eh, the app might have helped a little, but, like, if we had to do it again without the app, it wouldn't have made a big difference. Right, okay. And so, you know, we don't know whether or not the app is needed, but we certainly have a, a rhetoric or a, you know, a narrative that says that the app is needed, or, or the apps as as they're being developed. And maybe in the wake of this, we'll, like, we'll have some data and we'll look at it and we'll go, oh, yeah, I don't know, it did, it did work. I mean, one of the things that we know is that things that, common sense tells us might work often fail when the rubber meets the road, right? Often, often don't work. You know, there was like the famously this like observational uh, series of observational studies that showed that, um, what do they called? Uh, uh, antioxidants, like the ones we find in carrots mm-hmm. were correlated with better outcomes in a bunch of infectious diseases. But it turns out that like just taking the antioxidant element is correlated with worse medical outcomes. That like eating carrots is good for you. Sucking the thing out of carrots that we think is good for you right. out, and just taking that isn't good for you. Which is why we do studies, right? Because like we can't we can't do experiments in our mind, right? Thought experiments only take us so far. Right. But if it turns out that it's important, then we are going to have to wrestle with some with with a, a real privacy uh, question, right? Like how do we make this work? And and if we are going to say as a society, as we seem to be saying. We don't know if it, if it works, but let's just throw everything at the wall and see if it works. One of the things we know for a dead certainty is that both contact tracing and exposure notification are extremely reliant on trust in the entity that's asking you to participate in the exercise. Right, People, people who have a good reason to lie or to hide where they are from the app or from the, t- the person who's talking to them those people become a huge hole in the, uh, in the system. I don't know if you remember, I'm a regular blood donor. So after the tainted blood crisis in Canada mm-hmm. with the Red Cross uh, deliberately distributing HIV-tainted blood to Canadians, the countermeasures or the, the new measures that came in in the wake of that were actually just nothing short of incredible. They were really, really good. And, and the best one, the, the final line of defense was that you would sit down with the nurse at the at the blood donor clinic. And the nurse would say, look, here are all the risk factors for HIV. And a bunch of them are things you probably don't want to talk to me about, like patronizing sex workers, or maybe you're in the closet and you engage in in risky same-sex sexual behavior, which at the time there was, it was very stigmatized and also was uh, believed to be more correlated with HIV transmission than it is now. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you to tell me whether you do or don't do those things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two stickers. They just both have barcodes on them. No one can read the barcodes. Only a computer can read the barcode. And one of these barcodes is the yes use my blood barcode, and the other one is throw my blood away. You put one of those stickers on this bag that we're going to put your blood in, then put the other one in this shred box, this locked shred box, and then I'll come back in and take the bag. We'll take your blood, we'll put it in there. You know, when it gets to the, the processing facility, they'll scan that barcode, and if it says throw my blood away, they just throw it away. It goes in a in a in a medical waste bin. That was there because there are so many social factors for people going to the blood bank to give blood, like like community blood drives, right? Right. Uh, workplace blood drives where they might not just might not want to talk to their colleagues about the fact that they have an uh, struggling with an IV drug use problem, say. And what it did was it it created a trust between the institution. And its users, both the people who received blood and the people who donated blood, that was very effective, right? Very, very effective. If we are going to spy on people in the name of fighting coronavirus, and if we cannot credibly say that we'll stop spying on them when the coronavirus scare is over, then we're going to see non-compliance with the medical surveillance. And if it turns out that the medical surveillance is important, then we're in trouble. And you know what? Like... People have good reasons not to trust the authorities when it comes to surveillance. You know, you may recall that that the Harris government put forward what was what was then called Canada's uh, Canada's Patriot Act. I think it was Bill C-35 or 53. I always get the numbered bills mixed up. But they they put it forward, and Trudeau was the leader of the opposition at the time, and he whipped his members to vote for it, even though he said he disagreed with it. And he said, when we take power, we will roll this back. But we cannot afford to be seen as soft on terror on the eve of an election. Mm. So, you know, the job of an opposition in a parliamentary democracy is to actually stand up for what it believes and not to engage in, you know, calculated acts of electioneering, but whatever. They voted for it and then they broke the promise, right? That bill's still in effect. So, when Justin Trudeau says, we're going to spy on you, but we're only going to do it for this reason. And when it's done, we'll stop, he already did that once and he lied. He's kind of burned his credibility on this. And you know it's not like the U.S. has a better track record. All of the temporary 911 stu- stuff is being renewed. There's a little bit of the Patriot Act that may have expired this year, although the word is that it's going to come back. Uh, and that's 20 years now yeah. since that was supposed to have sunset. Um, it turns out that winning wars on abstract nouns is hard. And so if you uh, if you claim that your measures will only last until the war against an abstract noun like terror has been Uh, has been declared, then it's very hard to declare that that victory. And so you can maintain the measures forever. So we're actually in a pretty rough position, you know, and I don't know how they make that promise stick. And I and I think that if they can't figure out how to make the promise stick, it kind of doesn't matter what they do, because people will not comply. Noncompliance is the biggest problem we have with medicine. Right. It's it's the it's it's that like th- this is the difference for example between be, between um, early uh, antiretroviral cocktails and later ones. The early ones required that you take certain pills at certain times of the day, and it was a complex compliance regime. Right, and people didn't comply, not because they were like mulish and stubborn. It was because it was hard, and so the transmission continued and and people's illnesses worsened. Simplifying the compliance regime was actually more important than improving the drugs themselves. Right. Because the drugs effort you could get a bigger boost by increasing compliance, by making people use it right. Hear this about masks all the time, and that was the whole argument against like civilians owning N95s, right? Was that uh, N95s only do their thing if you put them on in a very, very specific way and then don't take them off again until you're ready to throw them away. Mm. We're really bad at that, right? As as many a wag has noticed, if coronavirus enters through the chin, then the world is safe because you walk around and that's where all the masks are, you know? So... If we have already undermined the chances of compliance, then those tracing efforts are going to be of pretty limited utility, even if it turns out that they would have worked if we had high degrees of compliance. But even if you accept then that we can get high degrees of compliance, I think that as privacy advocates, we really need to be thinking about what we do to ensure that these things are sunset when the day comes. You know, there is a um, there is a, an idea in economics called the Ulysses Pact. So if you remember your Greek mythology, uh, when uh, sailors went through the siren-infested waters, the mermaid-infested waters, the song of the sirens would lure them into the sea, and they would drown, and the mermaids would feast on their bones. And so the protocol for sailing through the mermaid seas was to fill your ears with wax, so you would be deafened to their song. But Ulysses was a hacker, and he wanted to hear what siren song sounded like. And so he said to his sailors, tie me to the mast. And that way I can, I can hear the song, but I won't be able to jump in. And so a Ulysses Pact is any time you recognize that in the future you may be weak, but now you are strong and you take an action to defend yourself against your future weakened self. And so like the night you go on a diet, you throw away all your Oreos. That's, that's a Ulysses Pact. Right. right? So is there a way we could make a Ulysses Pact? Could we, for example create, say, a private right of action. I don't know. I don't know how how we do this. Maybe we create a private right of action where any continued use of COVID-specific surveillance for non-COVID purposes uh, during or after the crisis, because what we don't want is people saying, oh, we're going to use coronavirus stuff to uh, track down bank robbers or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're going to use contact tracing for that or, or an exposure notification for that. You create a private right of action where you get to sue... Any government that does that and you are entitled to statutory damages of, you know, three times the median wage or enough money to do something. I don't know. Yeah. I Like something that something that stings for the person who does it, uh, uh, who, who breaks the rule and something that is so good that the person who's had the rule broken against them has a, a reason to come forward like maybe that you know out of the field of of like economics maybe we can make that work maybe we can set up a criminal penalty for anyone who abuses the data that's yeah. that and, and make it per, make people personally liable and strip them of the immunity they might have because they work for a government or a corporation you know to, to like make this as serious as we can maybe we can make all evidence based on coronavirus tracing inadmissible in court so that if the cops ever did try to use coronavirus data to try to solve a crime, it would be a get out of jail free card for the criminals, right. right? So then, then like leaving your contact tracing stuff on even while you're doing crimes becomes something that that criminals want to do, you know? I don't know. Yeah. But but all of that is predicated on the idea that like people will trust their institutions enough to do it, and I kind of think that horse is bolted. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a privacy advocate. I'm saying it because like, I'm sad and disappointed because we do have a lot of potential things we could do if there was more trust in our institutions. And, I, and I'm really uh, disappointed that our leaders treated trust in institutions as a disposable good that could be thrown away when it was politically expedient. Yeah, and and you know that maybe is the lesson that we need to learn, right? That when that comes out of that, that might be more important than whatever we learn about the relative relative efficacy of contact tracing versus uh, exposure notification. Is that trustworthy, honorable, and legitimate institutions are the most valuable asset we have for fighting any social ill, including pandemics. Well, it's interesting because just today. Um it was announced that uh,
0: facebook is paying a, a 9 million dollar canadian fine for having breached some competition bureau rules and i mean i think as everyone knows 9 million dollars is probably the contents of uh, mark zuckerberg's couch uh, it goes to your point about you know incentives or in this case disincentives for companies or organizations misbehaving that just don't align i think your 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 analogy with 911 actually works really well because a lot of the 911 you know, rules and regulations that were put in place, they, a lot of them were given sunset clauses or automatic reviews after a certain amount of years. And that felt like the right thing to do at the time. But a lot of them were just rolled over and, and they, the reviews were were almost like a rubber stamp because they were able to continuously say, well, this is still needed. So I, I, I really like your point about how do we strengthen that disincentive for bad behavior as well as create an environment where people can actually trust that, you know, leave your leave your COVID-19 tracing app on even when you're robbing a bank feels like the bar we should be trying to hit. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. You know, and I actually think there's a pretty easy remedy. Uh, well, not an easy remedy, but a simple remedy. It's super hard, but it's simple. For firms that have uh, accomplished mergers or acquisitions on the strength of promises related to privacy or competition, That subsequently break those promises, which is that the merger should be unwound, right? Uh, You know, Zuck promised the European Commission that they would never merge the back ends of WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm. That they would all be siloed and that data would never be commingled. And then they went ahead and did it and got a fine. They shouldn't have gotten a fine, right? Those acquisitions were conditioned on... Maintaining the, the the distinction between it, it's like it's like uh, you know if you've got a doctor who promises to uh, you know never deliberately harm a patient, and then they deliberately harm the patient. I mean, really, they had one job, right? They're not allowed to be a doctor anymore. Yeah. Right. I think that like if you if your merger scrutiny is conditioned on uh, or your passage through merger merger scrutiny is conditioned on certain conduct promises, and you violate the promises, then as not not just in spite of the fact that it would be expensive, painful, and might cost you the business to unwind the merger. Because it is expensive, painful, and might destroy the business to unwind the merger, you should be forced to unwind the merger. Because as Albert Camus said, sometimes you have to execute an admiral to encourage the others, right? It, it, if mm. Instagram goes down because Facebook broke its promises, no company would ever break their promise again. Anyone in the boardroom who said, oh, we'll break the promise. We can afford the fine would be shouted out of the boardroom and no longer invited to those meetings because the consequences would be too great. Yeah, I like I like what you said
0: earlier. And and then I'm paraphrasing a little bit. So correct me if I'm if I misinterpreted. But I like what you said earlier about how, you know, if we could put the right privacy, you know, regime in place imagine the things we could do. So like, imagine just not just COVID, but imagine the types of things that we could do as a society if we could actually trust the privacy implications of the things that we do. And I wonder if that's a message that maybe the government needs to hear more of, because clearly, if you think about social good, there's a ton of social good that technology could be doing if people could simply trust that it was only being used for that purpose.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I do think that we we have a a kind of collective action problem with our institutions where uh, everyone who takes an action, every official who takes an action that weakens an institution is like, well, my little bit of weakening will not destroy the system. And they're right, but collectively they do. I mean, this is why where you do have these um, high trust environments, we punish small transgressions so thoroughly, right? Like the one pilot who has a cocktail before getting behind the yoke of a 747 probably won't crash that 747. But any pilot who's caught doing it gets into really serious trouble because if we have a lot of drunken pilots in the sky, we're going to see a lot of dead people. You know, historically, official corruption has been one of those things that we take very, very seriously until we stop And there's a brief period where there's a kind of less, you know, there's a kind of like play in the system that's quite nice and things that, you know, people can exercise a little more judgment and edge cases can get through and maybe some good stuff happens, but the system deteriorates really fast. And then you lose all the benefits of it. You know, there's a reason, like, like a, a way to see this playing out, for example, is like um, what happens in countries that enable criminals to launder their money, like the United Kingdom, right, which is like the world's great money laundry. You know, you have people from like the former Soviet Union who's stolen billions and they need to do something with it. And they can't just like leave it in the bank in Kazakhstan because the local dictator might change his mind one day and just raid the bank right? So they need a country that has like the rule of law and stable property relations. So they go and they buy luxury flats in London, just safe deposit boxes in the sky that they just leave behind. Or, you know, Vancouver or wherever, right? Mm-hmm. The thing is that over time the tolerance for that criminality weakens the rule of law in your country too, right? So you, you get the benefits in the short run of having this so-called investment, right? Just just criminals throwing money at, at your at assets in your country. You get that benefit for a time, but then your own rule of law is weakened, and now you've got nothing, right? You've, you've paid the price of like allowing your housing stock to be converted to safe deposit boxes. So you've got homelessness and housing insecurity and so on. And you no longer have the benefit, the, the stability that caused people to value your assets to begin with. And so you lose all of it, right? It, it, you just end up with nothing at the end.
0: Yeah, well, it's definitely an interesting time. Everything that's going on, I don't, I don't think I ever envisioned internet issues. I mean, obviously, I'm very passionate about internet issues. You're very passionate about internet issues, but I don't think anyone ever envisioned it being this close to home, this quickly. I mean, I think everyone saw this as a gradual evolution. So, um, I just really want to thank you for uh, for being here today, uh, Corey. Um, I'm curious, uh, how are you coping uh, with the current situation uh, personally?
1: Well, you know that CBC competition to finish the phrase as Canadian as dot, 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 and the winning entry was possible under the circumstances? (laughs) Right, okay. I, I I am everything as possible under the circumstances. You know, we're holding up. We are solvent and we are healthy. So many friends of mine in other parts of the world have gotten very sick. And some of the people we know in California have gotten very sick. Most of the people we know who've gotten sick in California work precarious jobs. Uh, and so they had the double whammy of uh, employment that was either like gig economy or cash in hand, uh, so without benefits. And then they got ill, and oftentimes they lacked access to adequate health care as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it was a triple whammy. So we are very lucky as these things go. My, my wife works for one of the movie studios here in Burbank, and her job uh, is almost entirely able to be done remotely. Um but you know, she got a pay cut, and uh, she is super stressed out because a lot of the people that she's worked for, that she works with, have been furloughed, and a lot of the partners she works with have have had similar consequences. Most of my work can be done remotely, but you know, like I have three books out this year. I was supposed to be going on six book tours. Uh, I think all of them are going to end up being canceled. I mean, in theory, we're still planning on them, but like, I think it's just going through the motions add to that the fact that we don't know how those books will be sold because we don't even know whether there will be bookstores. And, it, you know, it's like it's disappointing now, like I fully stipulate that having three books coming out is nothing to complain about. You know, we're really counting on the income from those three books and on those three books being uh, bestsellers uh, to to carry us through and to continue to buoy out my career. So it is a bit of a mixed bag here. But I write every day. I left Boing Boing, the the weblog that I'd written on for 19 years and that I still partially own uh, in January and started my own project called Pluralistic.net. I'm kind of uh, going back to some of the early roots of blogging and and doing a kind of surveillance-free advertising-free, purely personal form of blogging that I found incredibly rewarding but also a little stressful. One of the nice things about being on my own and not being with Boing Boing is that, uh, at least for now, because my profile is a little lower, angry rich people who are upset that they were criticized on the Internet aren't suing me as they did routinely when we were at Boing Boing. I mean, they always <laughs> lost, but they always sued, right? So it's nice to not be to not be under threat of continuous litigation, you know, and I do feel for my colleagues at Boing Boing who, who are still there. And I'm working with Electronic Frontier Foundation still, and you know that work was always remote. It remains remote, and as you say, it's never been more important. So like, this is my busy season, you know, yeah. if anything.
0: Yeah, it's it's really quite remarkable. Well, I'm making my way through Radicalized right now, so uh, really enjoying it. And uh, oh, thank you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you get a chance to for those books to see the light of day. Is do you have titles released on those yet, or is that not?
1: Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Um. So the first book that's coming out, and I didn't realize that was an invitation to a plug. Sorry, I should have been more. <laughs> Why not? Through. Uh, So the first book that's coming out is a a reissue of Little Brother and Homeland with an introduction by Edward Snowden. This is my best-selling YA series. Uh, And Snowden and I had a a couple of really long conversations to talk about where those books stand in the world now. A lot of people who read them became information security professionals. I I hear that on the reg. If you watch the the Snowden documentary uh, that Laura Poitras made, you'll see that he's got one of those books with him when he goes on the run from Hong Kong. You know, he he's really got a lot to say about the book. His introduction's smashing. Um, and it's nice to have it repackaged for a new generation. And then a week later, I've got my first ever picture book for little kids coming out. It's called Posy the Monster Slayer. Oh, wow. And uh, it's it's a uh, a book about a little girl who, rather than going to sleep when her parents tuck her in, just keeps getting out of bed and making field expedient monster slaying weapons out of her toys and hunting monsters in her bedroom... This slowly turns her parents into sleep-deprived zombies. Zombies turn out to be the only monster she can't defeat, but all they really want to do is tuck her in, which they finally (laughs) do when they defeat her. Uh, It's a very cute book, uh, Posey the Monster Slayer out on July the 14th. Uh, Both of those books are from Macmillan. Uh, And then the third book, which is also from Macmillan, is the third Little Brother book, uh, which is called Attack Surface. It's out on October the 12th. It's a book about the young woman, Masha, who's at the beginning and the end of the other Little Brother books. Uh, who works for a surveillance contractor? Works basically for like Palantir or NSO Group, and so fittingly, I, I got a couple of really good afterwards for that. Uh, one is by uh, Ron Deibert, who runs Citizen Lab at University of Toronto, right. okay. which is the the sleuthing cybersecurity lab that keeps catching arms dealers that sell surveillance tools to repressive governments like the NSO Group that you know is is uh, partly owned by the the Canadian billionaire uh, Yen Appeal which um, has been implicated in, among other things, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And she's one of the people who's threatened me, by the way. And then the other intro is by um, uh, Runa Sandvik, who is a, uh, an information technologist and security specialist who's part of the TOR project and who was for many years charged with defending the New York Times newsroom against state actors and non-state actors who wanted to hack journalists. Okay. So they, they wrote some re- really good material for it, and the book itself is a very cracking yarn. So those are the three books, and if you pre-order Attack Surface, which you know, if you Google like pre-order Attack Surface, uh, you will get a free little brother story when the book comes out, uh, both as an ebook and as um, an audio book. A story called Force Multiplier that I wrote just for the release.
0: Oh, that's great! Well, definitely have to uh, definitely check that out. Um, glad glad you're keeping busy. Glad you're keeping safe, and uh, we will look forward to seeing those uh, those books out soon. And and hopefully maybe we can have another conversation about all of this uh, COVID-19 stuff uh, in the past tense at some point uh, in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't that be nice? Uh, as, as as we say at Passover, next year without a mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think
0: I wrote the other day something along the lines, of, I'm, I'm really looking forward to not using the word unprecedented so much in everything I write.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, I'd like to say like it's an unprecedented uh, golden age ushered <laughs> in by the realizations we had as a result of the horrors of coronavirus. But yes, I certainly take your point there.
0: Great. Well, Corey, I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. And uh, stay safe. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks. Now on to our second interview. I talked to Catherine Hill, Executive Director of Mediasmarts, about that organization's new program, Check First, Share After, that helps fight misinformation online. Okay, so today I'm chatting with Catherine Hill, Executive Director of Hill, Executive Director of Media Smarts. Catherine, thanks for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Maybe you can tell me a little bit about this interesting new program that uh, Media Smarts has started up called Check First Share After. Um, I know Media Smarts is a longtime partner of CIRA's and we do a lot of work together, but this is something that, that you guys pulled together in response to COVID 19, is my understanding. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about it.
2: Sure. So, Check First Share After is a campaign that we launched about a month ago in response to the misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories that are uh, huge amounts on all of our information feeds. And so we were deeply concerned about the spread of false information about COVID-19 online in particular, because it's a serious problem with very real life consequences, you know, including some really serious health implications. And so we wanted to help Canadians feel empowered, Feel like they were able to take action and that they have a critical role in being part of the solution to fighting misinformation and disinformation online.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine given the evolving nature of the entire COVID-19 pandemic, information changes quite frequently. Obviously scientists and, and researchers are learning things day to day. I would imagine that makes the situation even more complicated.
2: It is. That's one of the things that uh, fo- some folks are really struggling with, and that's separate, right, from misinformation or disinformation. So there's so much going on. There's so there's so much information that's available to us. Uh, the World Health o- Organization has called it an infodemic in terms of, right. you know, we've always had this velocity and volume since the you know, online became omnipresent media in our lives. But uh, this is just amplified by 10 billion, <laughs> which is a gross exaggeration, but to make a point, like it's just everywhere all the time. It's you, know, And people are feeling anxious, they're nervous, they're feeling out of control. And so they look to information. It's human nature. It's what we do to try and get a sense and make meaning out of what's going on and try and, and understand what we're going to do today and tomorrow and what's going to happen to me and to my loved ones. And so that makes us incredibly vulnerable. And that just contributes to the problem. And to your point, science is not perfect ever. It shouldn't be. It's actually a sign of good science that it changes. But that's incredibly frustrating when you're looking for certainty because you're feeling really anxious and uncertain. The big example that a lot of people have been talking about is masks. And, you know, first they said don't wear masks. Now they say do wear masks. That's not a sign of misinformation or disinformation or a false information campaign or some kind of conspiracy. It's really about the information that scientists have and the evidence evolving and changing. And it's a good thing, but it is difficult. And it does get mixed up in with uh, that's fake or that's not real or nobody knows what they're talking about because that isn't the case. And we, we, we seem to have forgotten that a little bit in the past, you know, five to ten years, that, that science has never been certain and stayed the same uh, until it's, you know, confirmed for decades. Uh, and even then we learn new things all the time. So that's, you know, in response to the science piece. What we yeah. really want people to do, and we know that we all don't do it, because uh, we've all been fooled by misinformation, it's really easy to be fooled, and we all have. So we know people are sharing information not because they're, uh, you know, they have uh, evil intentions or they're malevolent actors. I mean, there are some of those folks, and they do exist, and 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 you know that's a separate issue. What we're talking about is everyday individuals. We're all digital citizens, so how can we be better digital citizens? And one of the things we can do that really makes a difference and there's great evidence out there now to support this is that if we stop spreading the misinformation that's a huge will have a tremendous impact even as little as 10 percent if we can cut that there's evidence to show it will have real health implications for the better in a pandemic situation so we can stop the spread of bad information people can be doing the right things to stay well that's really important and But additionally, Mm -hmm. as well as not sharing, you know, so we're sharing the bad information because we care. And so, you know, I know, I'm pretty sure my mom loves me. She says she does. She sent me stuff that was just really not healthy or wise. And so Mm -hmm. my big concern was that she was believing it. But additionally, she was sharing it with many people. And she had received it from, you know, this giant trail of hundreds of people who were doing things that weren't going to protect their health and might put them at risk. And so they're doing that because they care. So what we want people to do is show that they care by sharing good information, not the bad stuff. And it's really easy to verify. Verification has gotten so easy now. All the tips are are on our website. You can do it in a few seconds. It's not a big hardship. A a lot of the time people tell me, oh, no one's going to verify. That's too hard. It's too much work. No, it isn't. It really isn't. And and for the privilege of having the world at our fingertips, it's a little bit of accountability that we can provide. Yeah. And then the second piece in this campaign that we're learning is as important is, you know, you check first, but you do share. And the sharing good information is really important. So a lot of campaigns have focused on just stop the spread, don't share bad, you know, bad you for sharing bad information and don't do it anymore. And just mm-hmm. stop. And that's not at all helpful. Um, what we all, we need to do is also fill the void because there are these data voids, especially around new information, like something like COVID-19, a whole new virus. If we can fill that data void with good information, we will drown out the bad. And that is a really important strategy that we're strongly encouraging across all platforms. And the platforms are starting to do it themselves as well. They're starting to block and identify when something mm-hmm. is bad. And they're redirecting people to good sources. And that's what we all need to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, that that it, it feels like, you know, people say, oh, it's a it's a bunch of work to check where something came from. And uh, you know, you said something along the lines of it's really not that much work. And I think, you know, um, one of the things I always try to talk to my kids about is you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have all of the world's information for all of history at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like a pretty low ask to say, hey, since you have all this information, maybe just check to make sure that it's accurate. So I feel like if you put it in that context, it feels like a little less onerous when you when you think about the responsibility of having all that information.
2: Exactly. And that's what the definition of a good digital citizen is and what we hopefully we're all going to start tr- striving to be. I mean, we're, we're still taking baby steps with all this technology. It is still really quite new and there's lots and lots of new platforms. And hardly anyone had heard of TikTok two years ago, uh, you know, and now it's hugely mm-hmm. popular and, and everyone is now on TikTok. So, of course, something else is going to come along to replace it because, you know, young people don't especially like us older folks crowding their space you know with, with the opportunity to be creative and to uh, use technology we, we do have some accountability yeah we can we can look to regulators for sure we can ask the you know and and demand that the platforms follow the regulations they've put in place and we can look to legislation but we also have to look to ourselves and each other in the same way that we you know do as good neighbors in the same way that we do when we create our community in real life it's a real community that we're a part of online. And we right. have, you know, we there's a way to behave. And so, and this is one of the responsibilities. It really is. If you're going to benefit from all that information and we want people to, and we want them to look and use technology and create content, then just spend a little bit of time making sure that what you're sharing is good. If you use it for good, uh, you know, we can, we can, we can. The internet can be what we all wanted it to be, and still has the potential to be. Right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, the website is checkthenshare.ca, um, and if you go there, you'll find uh, sort of the, some really great resources. You know, just run through really quickly the steps that you're recommending: are check where the info originally came from, check that it came from a trusted expert source. Check what public health authorities and governments are saying, and then share once you've checked that the info is legit. Um, it's I think it's it's really simple, and uh, one of the things that uh, I know MediaSmarts does a lot of is is teaching digital literacy, and and it, I think it's really undervalued how important it is, not just like you said to have the the platforms like Facebook and Twitter enforcing rules, but to put some accountability on the users to make sure that everyone is uh, is sharing accurate information. So it's a really helpful resource.
2: Yeah, we believe so. We think, you know, we all can make a real difference. And there's there's tremendous evidence that says just pausing, just taking that moment to pause, because we know the platforms, are you know, were designed to make us react quickly. But just that second to pause and check really quickly has a huge impact on what we share and how we share it. And uh, yep, yeah, checking multiple sources. And for COVID-19, it's really easy. There's so much good, trusted information. Just remember to not rely on information from social feeds. Information on your social feed is not news. It's not verified from a trusted, reliable legacy organization all the time. And so if you're going to consume news, go to reliable news sources, figure out what those are. And then you can always go to them. And yeah, and then, of course, share Share, share, share. When you find something really good and that's important for people to know about, please do share.
0: Absolutely. So other than going to the website and checking out the tips there, uh, what else uh, can people do to help out um, with this campaign or or to spread the word here?
2: Well, exactly that. We'd love for people to spread the word. We've got a whole bunch of, uh, for those who are so inclined and are on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, we've got. Uh, or Snapchat, we've got all kinds of uh, shareable images and gifts and all kinds of stuff that you can use. Help yourself. They're on the website. Uh, share it with your friends and family and your networks. Uh, that will make all the difference to uh, growing the the campaign and making people more aware.
0: Great. Well, um, you know, as you mentioned, the evolving science in this is uh, is is something that is always a uh, you know makes things more complicated. But uh, I'm still having trouble with Pluto not being a planet, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm still working through that. And and my seven year old has has vowed to avenge me and to become a scientist and prove otherwise. So um, I'm looking forward to uh, to the day when Pluto joins the planets again. And I'm looking forward to everyone only sharing trusted information online. So um, thanks a lot for helping us uh, walk through this. And And thanks for chatting with me today.
2: Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right. So that's it for the show. I'd like to thank Corey Doctorow for joining me. If you're looking for some great summer reading, Radicalized, one of his more recent books, is one that I can't recommend enough. It was chosen as a CBC Canada Reads 2020 book. And it's a really interesting look at a bunch of digital issues that will make you both laugh and cry at the same time. I can't recommend it enough. I'd also like to thank Catherine Hill from Media Smarts for being with me. Uh, that program is something that I think we need more than ever right now as we see the level of misinformation and uh, fake news that is appearing online. So you should check it out. As always, if you're looking for show notes or any of the links that I mentioned during the podcast, you can find them at sira.ca slash podcast. And if you have any feedback on the show, you can email me at the dot at sira.ca. I'm happy to hear about any program suggestions or guests, or even if you don't like it, just let me know. I'd be happy to hear it. Thanks again for listening, and be safe out there.